priest called A to Z, we've gone through the C's, we're in the D's now, and the subject is death. You just can't pass by the D's without talking about it. It's kind of a morbid subject to some people, but necessary. Because as I've told you, you're closer to death today than you were yesterday. You made it through another night. Congratulations. We have called this the final enemy. Now Paul, in this last verse we read, declares emphatically that death is an enemy. There's no question in his mind as he talks about the resurrection and the glorious body that we're going to one day possess as believers. There's no question but that death is an enemy. He declared it to be so without any hesitation. I got to thinking about David's shepherd psalm, Psalm 23, and it starts out very nicely and calmly. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He restores my soul. But then you come to verse 4 and he, he gets a little bit off the joyous trend and he says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. A shadow comes over us, falls over a person, passing through a deep valley. And then he said something about fear. I will fear no evil. In other words, it's natural going through that valley to have fear. So he agrees with Paul that death is an enemy, and in that dark valley, there's going to be a natural reaction, fear. But then he goes on to say, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Only the assurance of God's presence can make it otherwise. And when he comes down to the end of the psalm, he says, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And then, oh, that then. You know, everybody faces a then. Then I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What hope comes to us in the scriptures when we face this final enemy. I want you to look at Isaiah chapter 38 with me for just a moment. Turn back there in your Bible to the passage about Hezekiah who was sick and near death. Verse 1, Isaiah 38. In those days Hezekiah was sick and near death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, went to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. How did Hezekiah react to that word from Isaiah the prophet? He turned his face to the wall, the Bible says, as he was sick and dying. And through his tears, he pleaded with the Lord to extend his life. And when you come to verse 5, 
Go and say to Hezekiah, Thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer, I have seen your tears, and I will add to your days 15 years. Then when you get to verse 10, Hezekiah is expressing what he had been feeling and what he had been thinking as he faced the surety of death. I am deprived of the remainder of my years. You see, it was a terror to him. Verse 11, I shall not see Yah, that's the Lord, the Lord in the land of the living. I shall observe man no more among the inhabitants of the world. Verse 12, my lifespan is gone. When you get down to the 18th verse, he says, For Sheol cannot thank you. Death cannot praise you. Those who go down to the pit cannot hope for your truth. The living, the living man, he shall praise you. You see, Hezekiah saw death as the final enemy. And he didn't want to face it. He wanted more time. I looked that up in the Living Bible, and it had a wonderful rendition. Here's how it reads in the Living Bible. My life is but half done, and I must leave it all. I am robbed of my normal years, and now I must enter the gates of Sheol, which is the grave. Never again will I see the Lord in the land of the living. Never again will I see my friends in the world. You see, there is fear. There is that sense of it being exactly what Paul said it was, an enemy to all of us. A foreigner came to this country and pointed out that we are so organized in the United States that according to the obituary columns, we die in alphabetical order. I thought that was a good observation. But we all die. Isn't that the truth? We all die. Nothing can hold it back. Even in the cemetery during a grave digger's strike was this sign. Due to the strike, all grave digging for the duration will be done by a skeleton crew. (laughs) Not too good of use of that word, but anyway. The Greek word, the New Testament was written in Greek. The Greek word for death here is thanatos, T-H-A-N-A-T-O-S. Thanatos meant mortality, pictures an end to all life's activities. So when these Corinthians read this, they said, that's it. Death is an enemy. Life is over. Mortality. And so when you come to verse 32, their attitude was, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's how you handle it. Have a big time. Put it out of your mind. Go out and live it up. 
But ladies and gentlemen, that doesn't do you any good at all. It doesn't work. It's still there, reminding you of your mortality. I have lost in my lifetime my parents, my wife's parents, all of our grandparents, a brother-in-law who died at 33 of a brain tumor who was an ordained minister in this fellowship. I've conducted funerals for two nephews, one age seven and one age four, both killed tragically. One crossing the street by a car, the other riding his bicycle when he hit a bump and threw him over the handlebars and his head hit the curb and he died. Whenever I get back up into my home country, I try to go out to the cemetery where all of these friends and loved ones are buried because I need to be reminded and you need to be reminded that we are pilgrims here. We're just passing through. I can say with Psalm 91.16 that long life is satisfying. I have now lived longer than my father lived. And I still feel young. And to be cut off from life is tragedy, according to Psalm 6. I agree with that. I have conducted 304 funerals in my career. And I can tell you that long life is satisfying and to be cut off from life is tragedy. You can't get around that, it's true. The cry from Job 14 is one I hear constantly. If a man dies, will he live again? I don't care your background. That's in your mind. You can't get away from it. And today we try to cover it up. More and more people say, I want the casket closed. More and more they are saying, we don't even want the body in the service. We will have a private burial before and we'll have a memorial. They don't want to face death. But brothers and sisters, I think it's good to face it. I recommend open caskets. Because I've been around long enough to know that we can get callous. We can get careless and we can forget that we are not here forever. We're on our way somewhere. Death is an enemy. I want to talk basically about two things. What is death and what is dying like? First of all, what is death? Well, we can turn to the Bible for some help. One answer is right here in our text. Death is an enemy. Paul said so. Job said in Job 18 verse 14, Death is the king of terrors. And in Psalm 55 verse 4, David said, The terrors of death have fallen upon me. I don't know where he was. Maybe Saul was 
pursuing him. He was in danger, and he talked about the terrors of death that had fallen upon him. The Bible tells us that death is not a thing to be desired. There are some reactions to death that we need to evaluate. Our civilization is virtually denied death by surrounding ourselves with cars and amusement, science and organ transplants, pills, trips and sports, and many other things. But I have to come to the pulpit today to be honest with you, to tell you there are many ways to die. There is disease. And you can be as healthy as anybody one day and the next plunged into a horrible abyss by being told you have an incurable disease. Ask Magic Johnson. Ask a cancer victim. Disease is one way to die and many cases it cannot be controlled. Age is, of course, the natural way. I heard on the radio this week that every day, because of our improvement in medical science and in eating habits and in exercise, we are adding so many minutes a day to our life. Isn't that nice? It only means that you put it off just a little bit longer. Age will eventually catch up with you. If you don't believe so, try and do what you did 20 years ago when you leave here. Just try it. I used to say I can take on my boys in anything at any time. And be assured of winning. I don't even mention that anymore. <laughs> there is violence. We read about it every day. People who didn't intend to die. But by violence were victims. Somebody else's action. Stress. Killing a lot of people. You can die at your own hand, but death is death by any means. Whatever way you slice it, it's still death. You cannot deny it. You dare not. Now, length of life may be, be determined by you in some ways by overeating, by smoking, by drinking. You can determine in some way how long you're going to live by foolishness, by forgetting the stamps on certain articles that tell you it's dangerous, by just passing by what people are trying to teach us these days about how to extend your lifespan. You can even die prematurely by unworthily partaking of communion. The Bible tells us so in 1 Corinthians 11. That's why many are weak and sickly among you and why many die. Not discerning the Lord's body. 
But God basically controls the issues of life and death. Remember that. In Job 14.5, Job said, My days are determined and the number of months is with you. David said in Psalm 102.24, Do not take me away in the midst of my days. And Jesus said, My hour has come. God determines and controls the issues of life and death, basically. But remember, you can move the time up by foolishness, by sin, and by wrong choice. Don't do that. Now, what is dying like? When we talk about dying, we have to talk about two categories. One for a believer in Christ, and the other a non-believer in Christ. In my former church, I had an undertaker by the name of Marvin who spoke about the people who died in Christ having a smile on their face and those who died outside of Christ in agony. I guess the best way I could describe an unbeliever and a believer dying is by reminding you of what my missionary brother Marvin said after years in the Macaw village in Paraguay, trying to win the Macaw Indians to Christ, was there 12 years before one convert was found. 12 years living with them. He said before Christ, B.C., before Christ, at every death, the dogs would howl furiously, and the people would wail unendingly. It filled the air with horrible sounds, he said. Despair. But he said, after numbers of them found Christ, I began to notice something, he said. When they would die, the dogs were not barking anymore. The people were not wailing anymore. He would hear songs. And there would be a sense of peace that filled the Macaw village. A.C. after Christ. I don't know any better way of showing you what the Bible has tried to teach us than through that illustration. There is a difference. Almost always a believer dies in peace and with some significant word or look. That's why I am so against a lot of the paraphernalia that we use these days and keeps people from a sound mind when they are ready to leave this life. It used to be that they would die at home with children and family members around their bed and they would talk and fellowship and then the person would go home. Hardly can have that happen anymore with all of the bottles and the catheters and the electronic devices and the strong medicines. It has deprived us of something beautiful. That is how a believer leaves this life and goes to be with the Lord. And how do you handle death with children? Mass that a lot. And I'm 
I want to say real loud and clear to your friends, don't lie to them. Tell them the truth. Tell them exactly what has happened. Children can accept truth. But if they find out you have been untruthful about this, what might you tell them that is untruthful in the future is in their mind. Tell them the truth. Children can handle it. Don't tell them things that are untrue about death. In an 11-year-old boy's diary after the death of his 5-year-old brother, he wrote these lines. Today we had Danny's funeral. There were a lot of flowers. The coffin was white. The service was a blessing. Then we went to see the grave. It was very unhappy, but Danny is with God. After we got home, Jerry Starrett and I played ball in the yard. That boy had been taught a good thing. Danny is with God. The grave was unhappy. But when I got home, you have to go on. So my friend and I played ball in the yard. That's it, folks. You've got to go on. And those little ones need to know that. And when you tell them the truth, it's amazing what takes place. I've told you, I think about Nathan, our oldest grandchild, when my wife's mother died. He came home the next Valentine's Day with Valentine's cards addressed to great-grandma. Kathy said, well, Nathan, great-grandma's in heaven. He said, I know it. I'm going to take him with me when I go. <laughs> That's not bad. Here's how one father handled it with his three children following the death of his wife and their mother. He reminded his children that they had lived in several houses. For various reasons, the time came to leave each house. So he said, we went on, leaving the house behind. Mother's body was the house in which she lived. During the night, God told her to come home. So she went, leaving the house in which she had been staying behind. That house was her body, and we loved it, but Mother no longer lives in it. So we would leave it there and put it in the ground and go on. Wise Father. There is a condition of life which the Bible calls death, but it is not the cessation of life. It is life apart from God, death is, lived in hopelessness and misery forever, outside of Jesus Christ and His words. But He said in John 11, standing in a tomb, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in Me shall never die. Believest thou this? 
Oh, indeed, there is a condition of life called death, but with Jesus' teaching and Jesus' example, who Paul said in our text, became the first fruits of all of us who die, we know that we shall see Him and be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. Hallelujah. Tell the truth. Tell the truth. When in the final illness, D.L. Moody, 19th century leader in the church, said, Soon you will read in the newspapers that Moody is dead. Don't you believe it, for I shall be more alive than I am now. Hallelujah. And I don't know if you've ever heard what Peter Marshall said, the great chaplain of the Senate, pastor of the Presbyterian Church in Washington, Great American movie made after his life, a man called Peter, Peter Marshall, speaking to his church board one evening. His church board said to them, when I am dead, please shed no tears. I'll be no deader than you have been for years. Oh, that's special. <laughs> Ethel Waters, the singer who has sung, his eye is on the sparrow, and most all of Billy Graham's crusades said, I'm not afraid to die. I'm kind of looking forward to it. I know the Lord has his arms wrapped around this big fat sparrow. <laughs> what an attitude. Having grown up in the Northwest, this was meaningful to me. A lady gave it to me years ago, and I've never used it publicly. I put it away in the file for such a day as this. It was written by Leslie Weatherhead, an American Indian Christian in western Washington. He wrote this titled A Parable of Life. Listen to these words. The baby is nestled up under his mother's heart well taken care of, well fed and happy. He likes it there. Suppose then that somebody comes to the baby and tells him, you're not going to stay there. You're going to be born. And he learns that by being born, he would leave this warm and secure place. That would be dying, for dying is considered an end. And the baby would say, I don't want to be born. I don't want to die out of this place. I like it here. What happens to him? The first thing he feels is soft, tender, loving hands gently holding him. He looks up into a wonderful face that is full of love and loving eyes shining down at him. Then as he grows he has fascinating experiences of childhood and young manhood. And the future is before him. He feels strong. It is good to be alive. He marries and has children. He becomes middle-aged, is happy and creative. And life is good. Indeed, the world is good. He loves it. Then the years begin to add up. His hair becomes white and his step is a bit feeble, and he knows he has to die. To leave all this and go away into another place, 
some uncertain place that is mysterious to him. And once again he protests, I don't want to die. But as it happens to all humanity, one day he does die to this world. What happens then? Does God all of a sudden change in nature? That doesn't make sense. Isn't it reasonable to believe that the first thing man will feel is the touch of great loving hands? That he will look up into a face that is infinitely loving? End of parable. Beautifully said. The Bible says this outward man is perishing every day, but the inward spiritual man is being renewed day by day. As Billy Sunday used to say, in heaven they never mar the hillside with spades, for they dig no graves in glory. In heaven they never telephone for the doctor, for nobody gets sick. In heaven, no one carries handkerchiefs, for nobody cries. In heaven, they never call for the undertaker, for nobody dies. In heaven, none of the things that invade your home here will enter there. Sickness won't get in, death won't get in, nor sorrow, because former things have passed away and all things have become new. In heaven, the flowers never fade the winters never blow, the rivers never congeal, never freeze, for it never gets cold. Oh, what a time we'll have in heaven. Amen. My mother died 31 years after my father. I was a pastor by this time. Had been for a number of years. She loved to come and slip in our services whenever she could. She became ill. She had physical problems and mental problems the last year and a half of her life. I had to go to Springfield for a foreign missions board meeting. While I was away... She was taken to the hospital. When I landed in Seattle, my wife was there to meet me, but her knees were bleeding and she was barely able to walk because coming to the airport, she'd stopped at a shopping center and fell running to the car and was in great pain from this fall. And I said as we traveled toward Tacoma, where my mother was in the hospital. Don't you think we should pull off and see Mom before we go home? Oh, she said, I know we should, but I hurt so bad. So I kept on going home, took her to the doctor the next morning, and he cast her foot because it was broken. While I was in the hospital, the phone rang, and the doctor said, Reverend, it's for you. It was my stepdad in Tacoma telling me that my mother had just slipped away to be with the Lord. We went there that afternoon to make preparation for the funeral, and they wanted me to preach my mother's service, which is not easy in the natural.
as we prepared and I went through her Bible and some of her effects. I want to tell you, friends, that when I stood in the pulpit that day and looked down into the face of my dear mother, I did not feel one bit of remorse, not one bit of pain or sorrow. I confess to you that what filled my heart was tremendous joy. I suppose they thought I was a little strange, that I didn't act so sorrowful, sad. But I was filled with joy. She had run a good race. She had finished the course. The meaning of her life had come to an end. She had done everything she could for those that she loved, and she laid the burden down. And as I stood there, I knew exactly where she was. Mom was having the best day of her life, united with my father after 31 years. And looking down, smiling at her son, preaching her sermon with joy. When we went to the cemetery, we had a good time. We've got a lot of family. We had a good time. And now, as I said earlier, that cemetery is dotted with many gravestones that have the name Cole or some relative with a different last name all through that area. And I love to go and just think, reminisce. Some died at age four, age seven, 52 as my father was, 70-something as my mother was, my grandparents even older, but they're all there. Oh, I shouldn't say it that way. They're not really there. Their bodies are there. The remains are there. But their spirit is with the Lord, and one day the body will be united with the spirit, as 1 Corinthians 15 says, and I am ready for that day. Death is an enemy, indeed. Nobody loves to read the name of a loved one or a friend that has died. Nobody goes around looking for funerals to attend. But when you come at it from Paul's perspective, it's victory. It's victory. It's home. Finally, home. The journey has ended. I've asked evangelist G.W. Hardcastle, Barbara, to come and share that song with us as we close. Finally home. He sang it for us some years ago, and knowing he was in town this weekend, I thought, this is time to hear it again. God bless him as he shares it. Finally home. When engulfed by the terror of tempestuous sea, 
unknown ways before you At the end of doubt and peril is eternity. Though fear and conflict seize your soul. But just think of stepping on shore and finding it heaven of touching and hand and finding it God's of breathing new air and finding it celestial of waking up in glory and finding it home. When surrounded by the blackness of the darkest night, oh, how lonely death can be. At the end of this long tunnel, is a shining light for death is swallowed up in victory but just think of stepping on shore and finding it heaven of touching and hand and finding it God's a breathing new air and finding it celestial of waking up in glory and finding it home. grace I shall look on his face that will be glory be glory for me Thank you, GW. Praise God. Praise the Lord. Just think, stepping on shore, finding it home, breathing new air and finding it celestial, of touching a hand and finding it God's. Friend, if you're not ready for that, oh, my. I urge you, give your life to Jesus. Don't take a chance that death will catch you before you make that choice. 
The devil wants your soul, but Jesus died for your soul. Give your life to him. So easy. Just say, Jesus, I need you. Step down from where you are through the aisle and to the front. Say by coming, I want to take Jesus as my Savior. I want to make heaven my home. We're all on our way somewhere. Are you on your way to heaven? How many are? Raise your hand. God bless you. Stand with me all over the building, please. Pastor Mike, would you come to a microphone? Be ready to lead us. I'm here because I want you to come where I am as Pastor Mike leads us in singing, just as I am, I come. I want those of you who are not sure about your eternal destiny, I want you to come. Take me by the hand and say, Pastor Cole, I want Christ. I want to know him, whom to know is life everlasting. Don't put it off another day. If you know you're not ready, you just step out and come. We'll be here to welcome you. We're all for you. God loves you. We're here to help you. Jesus will come into your heart, forgive you of your sin, take the fear away, give you hope and assurance. Just Come as we sing from wherever you are. Greet me. Just as I am without one plea. But that thy blood was shed for me. And as thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. We'll sing another verse. We'll wait. You come. Just as I am. balcony somewhere and you say it's an awful long way down there I'd like to come but boy that's a long way to walk well friend it's not really that far when you think of what Jesus did for us and is waiting for us to respond to Billy Graham continues to say the Bible says the Bible says and then he invites people from large stadiums to step out and come down on a field and confess Christ. If you haven't done it, do it today. 
There's no such thing as a secret Christian. It has to be out in the open. 